This is an ABC podcast. Well, good day and welcome to Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer. Always great to have your company. Now, on the show today, I dissect the events of 2018 with Judith Sloan from the Australian newspaper and Jenny Hewitt from the Australian Financial Review newspaper. We cover Trump, Brexit, Turnbull, and of course, all the shenanigans in Canberra. Later on, a dose of optimism to finish off the year. I'll be speaking with Victor Purton. He's the author of a book titled, The Case for Optimism. Another year, another bout of political instability and volatility. In August, as we all know, Malcolm Turnbull was toppled and we welcomed our sixth prime ministership in nearly eight years. Six, I think. That's right. So we had Rudd, Gillard, Rudd, Abbott, Turnbull, Morrison. And of course, if Shorten wins in the first half of next year, we would have had our seventh prime ministership in nine years. Extraordinary, isn't it? Meanwhile, the Trump White House continued its erratic and chaotic ways, even as the US economy kept booming. In Britain, Brexit remains a mess. We had more evidence of that this week in the Commons. Whereas in Asia, China's strategic and economic rise continues unabated, and Canberra ended its year-long diplomatic freeze with Beijing. Now, to discuss 2018, let's welcome two of our nation's leading newspaper columnists. Jennifer Hewitt is with the Australian Financial Review, and Judith Sloan is with the Australian Ladies. Welcome to RN. Hi, Tom. Thank you very much, Tom. Jenny, you think about Malcolm Turnbull, his ouster followed mounting party dissatisfaction with his leadership, a long run of bad public polls for Turnbull himself. Was his downfall inevitable and justified? No, I don't think it was either, really. That's not to say that Turnbull didn't make plenty of mistakes, including the 2016 election campaign uh, and plenty of other misjudgments on, on policy and tactics. But I think what you're seeing now play out is the very great difficulties in the Liberal Party and what we now happily refer to after all this experience of change, Prime Ministers, uh, the high transactional costs. And you've got a a party that's bitterly divided still, certainly no improvement in the polls, rather the reverse. And I think an electorate that's actually sick to death of this habit of, um, of changing Prime Ministers in response to bad polls halfway through, which is why, obviously, Morrison's moved to change that as well. Yeah. Well, Judith, well, given the internal problems in the Liberal Party, certainly post-Turnbull, the disasters of Wentworth at the Victorian state election, is Jenny right? The coup was a spectacular failure? I think it's a bit like saying divorce has high transactional costs. That doesn't stop people getting divorced, I'm afraid. Yeah, people do know that it has high transactional costs, but you have to, I think, analyse the factors that led to uh, Turnbull being um, overturned. And in many ways, they were self-inflicted factors, in my opinion. Him, for example, overstating his confidence in the by-elections, Longman and the like. I think his serious mishandling of the energy policy issue within the party. And, of course, in many ways, the important backdrop was his appalling performance in uh, the election, which led to, uh, you know, 14 losses of seats in such a precarious situation in the House. If it hadn't been for that, 
quite a lot of this stuff wouldn't have mattered so much. So I think his poor campaigning skills was also an important factor. But just like divorce, people are not entirely rational. They cannot foresee <laughs> the future and therefore they kind of go for it at a particular point in time yeah. and we're seeing that play out now. Now, Jenny mentioned these reforms that Morrison's put in place, and of course, Canberra has widely been seen as the coup capital of the world for the last decade. Jenny, to what extent is this constant leadership churning, to what extent has that been a problem for Australia? I certainly think it has been a problem for Australia in terms of policy, and it is true, of course, that this sort of instability and disgruntlement and generally, you know, voters saying they've had enough of politics as usual is widespread throughout the Western world. Yes, but as The Economist highlighted in a cover story this year, we are still the envy of the financial world, aren't we? That's right, and I think that's one of the issues that you have to look at in, in the Australian context and say, yes... Other countries are having, you know, all sorts of political leadership problems as well. But Australia, in many ways, should not be having the same level of discontent. So I do think, therefore, that it, it's, a, it's a negative that Australia has, again, self-inflicted mm. um, and, and didn't, didn't need to produce. And again, look, I take to your point. I mean, there's no doubt that Malcolm Turnbull made all sorts of mistakes. But I think if you've seen the evidence of the Morrison government going on, there's all sorts of mistakes being made there too and all sorts of unhappiness. And against that, if, if you're looking at bad poll results and what's going to happen in the election, there's no indication that the Morrison government will do better. In fact, the reverse. Mm. Judith, we had on the program a few months ago Andrew Neil, the distinguished BBC journalist, and he made the point that we rarely hear in this country that as unstable as politics are in Canberra, the polarisation, the partisanship, the policy dysfunction are far worse in Washington, Westminster and many parts of Europe. Your response? Well, I think it's a really important point and, I mean, Jenny's already alluded to this. It's important not to think this is some sort of, you know, koala factor here, that actually what's happened in Canberra in many ways, I think, is a reflection of what's happening in other parts of the developed world. I mean, it's a sort of irony that in many ways, 2018 has been a pretty good year for the global economy. And quite a few of these countries have effectively become sort of job machine. Unemployment very low in the UK, very low in the US. We've had a lot of job creation here in Australia. Admittedly, that's been juxtaposed with relatively slow wage growth. And look, I think there are some very worrying signs about the future of the global economy, but it is surely a bit ironic that we have this period of political instability here and elsewhere in the context of what is actually a, a reasonably prosperous world economy. Okay, well, let's turn to one of the big public policy issues in Canberra this year, energy. Jenny, can the major parties really ever reach a policy consensus? Can they reach a consensus given the deep divisions over whether the priority should be reducing emissions or reducing power prices? As you said, this has been able to be resolved over the last decade. You could say that eventually kind of common sense will prevail. Now, much of the industry would say, of course, that those two goals are not mutually contradictory. The way that they've been applied in Australia may have been contradictory, but that's just the general confusion. Look, I think over time we will get, obviously, just a kind of more renewables in the system and the ability to stabilise it, etc., will be helpful. But in the next few years, we'll be just as rocky. And the other issue I think you've got to realise is that the days of cheap energy in Australia 
are over for a whole lot of reasons, not just policy, but, for example, you would have to build, for example, new coal-fired power stations, which are actually pretty expensive to build. In terms of gas, which is the obvious alternative, I mean, one of the reasons that the US energy prices are so low is because of gas, because of the shale revolution. Well, whereas in New South Wales and Victoria... You've got state government that just absolutely refuse to allow that. It's interesting, uh, Judith, uh, Trump gets hammered all the time and I, I defended him on Q&A, uh, much to my uh, great displeasure uh, recently when I said that, you know, he's pulled out of the, t- the Paris Climate Accords, but US emissions are coming down because of the shale fracking revolution that Jenny mentioned and power prices are coming down. Oh, exactly. And, you know, I'm not sure I do agree with Jenny. I think to say, well, power prices in Australia have to go up is rather throwing in the towel here. It's a really is a complicated story. But one thing that really does intrigue me is why the federal government became so on the hook about this, actually, because the national electricity market, for example, is owned by the states and the territories or the eastern states and territories, right? Traditionally, the federal government would have only had a very hands-off, facilitative role. If there were power shortages or blackouts or price rises, people would have been blaming the state government. Now, not anymore. But at the same time, they've still got a situation while people are looking for them to achieve outcomes and solutions. They are actually not uh, entirely in control. So I can't see this, actually even under Labor being sorted out any time soon. My guests are Judith Sloan from The Australian and Jennifer Hewitt from The Australian Financial Review. Jenny, with the Democrats' control of the US House at the midterm elections in November and the Mueller investigation issuing more convictions, many seasoned observers of Washington politics say that Donald is damaged goods. You disagree. Why? Well, I think he is damaged goods to some extent in the same way that that leaders all over the world are, are damaged goods. And he, of course, is far more erratic and unpredictable. But the thing about Donald Trump is he's also very destructive of his opponents. So to the extent he's damaged goods, and I know many people in the Democratic Party will say that, you know, there'll be impeachment. We have been listening to that for a couple of years, and and maybe that will happen. But you rate his prospects of re-election pretty good, don't you? I still think they're pretty good. Now, it's it's possible that there will be, as has he rather memorably said, no, because there's no um, smoking gun. It's possible, you know, as we've seen, the legal system in the US can be tortuous, but it sometimes does produce pretty extraordinary results, and that may happen again. But I think with the absence of that, yes, I don't think um, the Democrats are showing up anything particularly great in terms of alternative leadership. They've got a very aged leadership, no no newcomers on the horizon. And under Trump, Judith, the US unemployment has hit a near 50-year low of 3.7%, the lowest jobless rate since man went on the moon. But the Fed is normalising monetary policy. Rates are going up. And who knows what's the impact of the trade wars? We keep hearing about a truce. Bullish or bearish about the US economy? Judith Sloan. Look, I think somewhere in the middle. I mean, I actually think... There have been far too many millions of words devoted to sort of the minutiae of Trump's tosses and turns and what he had for breakfast and the like, and, you know, did the Russians give it to him? I mean, if we're talking about damaged goods, in fact, Trump's looking like a sort of font of stability compared with <laughs> Theresa May. And Macron. Emmanuel Macron. <laughs> and, of course, Angela Merkel, Merkel. Going, going out. And Morrison. Fast. I think, actually, this is what I call kind of monumental press failure, that... 
People actually forget that, for example, Clinton was impeached by the House, but of course the Republicans have got the numbers in the Senate. And remember, you need two-thirds of the Senate to convict. Now listen, we're running out of time. I want to talk about the political winners and the political losers of the year. Jennifer Hewitt, your political winner of the year and why? Well, I tell you what, my my ultimate pleasure of the winner of the year would have to be Bill Shorten. I mean, it doesn't matter what he's done, what what Labor's done almost, the Liberal Party keeps shooting itself in the foot. And so at the moment, it looks as if we go on holidays for the next six months and come back and win the election. Low expectations are a priceless political asset. Remember, he was written off time and again uh, when he became the Labor leader. And look at him now, he's on the cusp of being Prime Minister. Judith Sloan, your political winner of the year. Look, I think it's Dan Andrews, to tell you the truth. You know, there he is, head of the second largest state. He led a government that had sort of scandal and dubious dealings one after the other, and yet it absolutely romped it in, including in uh, seats that had always been held by the Liberals. So I think it it caught the the Liberal Party terribly flat-footed in terms of its campaigning strategy. You know, it prob- really probably helps so that Victoria, as John Howard puts it, is the Massachusetts of Australia, where the centre of political gravity has shifted well to the left. Do you agree with that? I think so. And I mean, of course, there is a sort of in brackets minor story that the Greens were basically uh, decimated mm. one way or another. Mm. Their vote didn't go anywhere. They won a couple of lower house seats in the end. But you say that, but I mean, there have been some liberal jewels in the crown around Melbourne, but Melbourne now looks uh, basically a, a red place, It's uh, in Australian terms. It's uh, a Labor town. <laughs> okay. Jenny Hewitt, your political loser of 2018. If we look on a national sphere, I mean, I, I think internationally you'd have to say Theresa May, but um, in Australian terms, I think definitely um, Malcolm Turnbull. Well, that's I mean, in- this has not been a good year for him and nothing nothing that he could do was able to stave off people who, um, who obviously toppled him in the end. There are many people in the Liberal Party today who see Turnbull as just like the other Malcolm, Malcolm Fraser, and the other two Johns, John Gorton and John Hewson. That is, when they le- lose the leadership, they become bitter and twisted. Do you think that Turnbull will seek revenge on the Liberal Party for the foreseeable future? Frankly, I do think he's got limited ability to do that because the more you do it, the more people kind of tend to discount you. But certainly his contributions over the last few weeks have not been at all helpful to the Morrison government. Judith Sloan, your political loser of 2018. Look, I think, again, it's important not to just think Australia and you have to put Theresa May there. I mean, come on. She's got basically the Remainers and the Leavers uh, against her. That was, you know, really quite something when you think about it. And... I think that in the short term, that can cost not just Britain, I think, very dearly, but I think it does create havoc to the global economy more generally. So absolutely hapless politician. Yes, I think she she gets my... uh, And we should stress that this week, Theresa May delayed a critical parliamentary vote on her Brexit bill, and that's thrown both her government and her plans for the EU exit into disarray. Ladies, a lively discussion. Merry Christmas to both of you, and to be continued in 2019. Thanks so much for being on RN. Merry Christmas, Tobin. That was Jennifer Hewitt from the Australian Financial Review and Judith Sloan from The Australian. Well, as 2018 concludes, we could do with some Christmas cheer, couldn't we? After all, we're fed a regular diet of doom and gloom, from nuclear proliferation to mass poverty, 
to economic insecurity, climate catastrophe. I mean, how many negative stories do you hear or read about? Now, according to the Harvard psychologist, Steve Pinker, in the 1970s, the news media published something like a 50 to 50 ratio of positive-negative yarns. These days, though, the relentless 24-7 news cycle that sees negative stories dominate airtime by about 80%. Crikey! Now, polls show we're profoundly dissatisfied about the way things are going in the world. Trust in our democratic institutions is dissipating. Support for our capitalist economy, that's in sharp decline. But my next guest says we should cheer up. Victor Purton is the author of Case for Optimism. It's now in its third edition, and it's a great pleasure to welcome him to RN. Hi there, Victor. Hi, Tom. Good to talk to you. Why should we be more optimistic, positive and hopeful, Victor? Well, firstly, on a personal basis, people who are optimistic are happier, they are healthier, they have better relationships, they are more likely to be able to innovate, they are more likely to succeed as an entrepreneur. So on a personal basis, to be an optimist is very important and important for your family as well. And then for the community, if we want to continue to develop, to grow, to solve the problems of inequality, to solve the problems of climate change. We can't be paralysed by pessimism. Pessimists are not good at innovation. Pessimists are, are not good at, at entrepreneurial activity. And so if we want to solve the problems that are there to be solved, we need to be able to do that and, and be prepared to make some mistakes. Optimists know that things will go wrong, that an experiment will fail. But just keep going. Be persistent. Be resilient. Okay, so your line is that optimists are far more likely to be innovators and entrepreneurial. I get that. Are people optimistic or pessimistic by nature, or do they choose to be? It's a bit of both. There's some genetic propensities to be optimistic or pessimistic. Then there's um, the conditioning, although, you know, I've talked to many optimists who've grown up in pessimistic households. But the important thing is to, to choose to be optimistic. As I've... Um, moved ahead with my work. The work actually started with a study as to why people were so negative about Australian leadership. You know, when I travelled around the United States as Commissioner of the Americas, there was a romance about Australia. The chairman of one of America's largest corporations said to me, you Aussies remind me of the Americans of 100 years ago. Nothing is impossible. And then so too in the work of the G20 presidency, you know, other countries, Russia, the like trusted the Australians because we're plain speaking and authentic. And then I came back to Australia and I was stunned by the level of negativity around leadership here. My view is Australian leadership is very good. There are millions of good leaders leading um, in NGOs, in households, in small businesses, in large businesses. But my eureka moment was really that it's, it's the pessimism yes. um, that is causing our distress. You know, I have many discussions with our viewers who listen to Between the Lines on a regular basis, and they say I'm too optimistic about Australia because I've made more or less your point. But you put things in a global perspective, Victor. If you go to Westminster, especially this week with the Brexit deliberations, you go to Washington, you go to France, you go to many parts of continental Europe. I mean, the polarisation, the partisanship there is much worse than Canberra, isn't it? Oh, indeed. I mean, like Australia, I mean, whether we change leaders or not, you know, the, the changes of, of leadership are non-violent, government keeps going, economic growth keeps going. 
you know, our health system. Um, you know, if you listen to the news, you would think we were in a, a Trumpian hole. But instead, you know, we've got one of the second or third best health systems on Earth. I live in Melbourne, you know, the Comprehensive Cancer Centre, one of the best in the world and driving research. Walter and Eliza Hall, you know, at the cutting edge of helping to get rid of global diseases. If you look at what's happening in Australia in terms of advances in technology, in terms of advances in food production, in terms of health, um, you know, I met a Chinese guy who'd moved to Melbourne recently. I said to him, what do you like about living in Melbourne? He said, I can breathe the air mm. and, and, and drink the water from the tap. So we live a very good life. For some reason, we've, we've developed a media culture worse than probably the rest of the world that emphasises catastrophe, that, mm. that leads with bleeds, it leads, and then if it sows dissension or discord, it comes next. And yeah, I know. And add to that the 27 years of uninterrupted economic growth. It's an OECD record. I myself have made your points, but I'll cop the backlash from millennials who were born between 1982 and 1998 or thereabouts. And they'll say to me, Victor, and they'll say to you, what about the high costs of living? What about uh, high mortgages? These young people are being priced out of the housing market. They'll complain about the high costs of education. Are you overstating your case? I mean, obviously, the economy is changing and Melbourne has 100,000 new migrants every year. There are people coming with a lot of money. It's driving up house prices. But it's a problem that, that, that is more severe in inner Melbourne and inner Sydney than the rest of the country. But if people look at, for instance, you know, the power they've got in communications, you know, the ability, you know, I think when I was a child, my mother was a widow and had to work, I think, a couple of months to buy the encyclopedia. Today, you say, hey, Siri, you know, tell me about X or Y. <laughs> so, if you look mm. at the total lifestyle of people, the communications they've got, you know, my children won't have the diseases that we had as children, you know, chickenpox and measles. Okay. I mean, globally, the rate of malaria has halved this century. Mm. Thousands of children are living who would have died. So if you look at, you know, the entire lifestyle risk, um, the risk of violence, the risk of dying in war, Young people of today are immensely better off than their peers of 50 or 100 years ago. And as the Productivity Commission pointed out earlier this year, rampant inequality in this country, at least, is a myth. If anything, sustained growth has delivered higher living standards across all income groups across the country. My guest is Victor Purton. He's author of Case for Optimism, now in its third edition. Uh, Victor, how do you respond to the doomsday scenarios about the environment? Say, we all too often hear about these extreme weather events. Isn't that cause for alarm? Of course, it's cause for alarm and global warming is a problem. But the people I admire most in this space, Al Gore, Christiana Fuegueras, the UN Secretary General, Michael Mann, are all saying you need to be climate optimists. If you have a look at the changing mix of energy generation, it's increasingly moving towards renewables. If you look at the pace of sustainability in major corporations, all of these things are reasons for optimism. But more importantly, you know, Gore and Fugueras and the Secretary General would say you need to be optimistic because pessimism paralyzes. If all you're going to do is march on the street and, and demand that government does something rather than doing something yourself, I think it's fairly fruitless. You know, the leader looks like the person in your mirror. And every morning people should be thinking, no, it's not someone else's fault. It's me. 
Yeah, you very rarely hear that good news. Yeah, you look at the statistics, our world in data shows that disasters or extreme weather events are claiming fewer lives. If you go back 50 years ago, an average of 37,000 people were killed by extreme weather events. These days, 7,000 people die. Now, obviously, 7,000 is still too many casualties, but that reduction in 50 years, that represents enormous progress, doesn't it? It does, but you see, the problem with the progress in communications is that every one of these catastrophes is broadcast to us close up. There's this increasing trend. You know, if there's going to be a hurricane in the United States, uh, you know, we spend five days on the news watching in anticipation of the catastrophe. So I think you and I, Tom, have to be sympathetic mm -hmm. to the millennials and others who are pessimistic. Because if you read the news, you watch the news, you listen to the radio, whether it's FM or anything else, all you get is this bleakest view of the world. And you have to read a lot. You have to really search out the facts that demonstrate that, that the world is better off because our politicians seem to be afraid to say that. Back um, to you. you know, the, 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 the line is, oh, well, you Aussies are doing it hard. Mm. And I always think to myself, my God, if we're doing it hard, you know, what about the people of Iraq or Yemen or the like? To be doing it hard in Australia... Sure, there are people, you know, suffering cancer or heart yeah. disease or they've got a tragedy in their lives, but no better country well, on Well, I Earth. remember in 2000, the United Nations announced several Millennium Development Goals, and one was to halve the number of people in extreme poverty by 2015. That target was met, Victor, in 2008 to too little media fanfare, a wonderful news story we rarely hear about. Bill Gates did a very interesting interview earlier in the year with Time magazine. And, and the editor of Time, halfway through the interview, said, oh, do you think we're not very good at covering good news? And he raised the fact that we'd halved the malaria death rate this century. 7,000 kids a week are living who would have died. Yeah. So this doesn't get a run. Mm. How do we do that? Well, I, I you know, read widely as you do, and, and every morning I tweet stuff out and put it out on social media. But I, now I'm, I'm getting out as much as I can. I mean, I did a session in a prison Monday before last on the Optimistic Leader. I'm doing refugee groups. I walk the streets and ask people what makes them optimistic. And I think, again, we've got to be sympathetic. If you listen to the news, you think that the world's going to hell. You and I have got the job of really communicating in a very good way to these people that, that there is a reason to be confident. Yeah, I mean, if you listen to, to, to the news and you've got children, the studies show in the Western world there is a lack of confidence in, in the future of work for children. Now, it, it makes no sense to think that our children are going to be stupider than us, that artificial intelligence, machine learning, quantum computing, genetic modification, CRISPR, all of these technologies are not, in fact, going to make our kids into supermen and superwomen, and that the future of work looks ever brighter. But you, again, listen to the news. It's, oh, you know, doom and gloom. And, and you know, people, I actually said that to the politicians in the Victorian state election. I'd, I'd say that to our federal politicians. Mind you, Victor, then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull in the 2016 election campaign ran on a platform, there's never been a better time to be an Australian. Materially speaking, all the available economic evidence indicated he was right, but it backfired, didn't it? Well, I mean, it was a difficult campaign, but I think that is the hardest thing for politics today, and that's my recommendation to, to any um, government or, or indeed opposition. So if you look at Australians, the data shows that they're optimistic for themselves, 
Um, if they're in a small business, they're optimistic. But if they're a parent, they're pessimistic about the future of work for their children. They're pessimistic about the country and they're pessimistic for the world. Um, and with our politicians now just going into this, he said, she said, or you have to be really frightened that he's going to be, he or she is going to be re-elected to government or elected to government. Uh, they're missing out on this opportunity to be optimistic. Now, it was interesting that in the Victorian state election, I mean, the Liberal opposition ran a fear campaign around crime. Daniel Andrews ran a very overt campaign on optimism, using the word several times in every major speech, um, saying that Victorians are optimistic people. And, you know, although I was a Liberal politician for 18 years and, and remain a member of the Liberal Party, the silver lining of that election result was that optimism defeated fear. Good way to conclude this wonderful segment. Merry Christmas to you, Victor, and thanks so much for being on the program. Uh, Merry Christmas to you, Tom, and keep being an optimistic influence <laughs> in, in the Australian media. That was Victor Purton. He's author of The Case for Optimism. And if you want a daily dose of optimism and encouragement, you can always follow Victor on Twitter at Victor Purton. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Between the Lines. It's always great to have your company. And remember, if you missed anything, you can find all our interviews on the RN website. Just go to www.abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. And make sure you tune in next week for the first of our summer highlights from 2018. I'm Tom Switzer. Hope you have a wonderful summer break. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.